Welcome to The Emergent Human. We explore optimizing health, and body spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. One of the three pillars of the Emergent Human podcast is optimizing health. Part of my own process in doing so is being a member of an organization known as Life Force. I joined Life Force after reading the book Life Force by Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis in order to get the support I needed to take my health to the next level. At Life Force, we help you take control of your health and stop settling for average. Every three months, we'll measure over 40 biomarkers that drive your mental and physical health, all from the comfort of your home. From that data, we create your personalized plan to help you get optimized. And no plan is complete without ultra-personalized care from our experienced medical doctors and health coaches, all just a text away. So what are you waiting for? It's time to redefine what's possible with Life Force. I'd like to welcome Amiel Handelsman on today's show to discuss his work on embodying self-offering mind in everyday conversations. Amiel helps leaders navigate complexity and grow as human beings. His clients use conversations, micro habits to make clear commitments, deliver what they promise and do this with more ease. As a writer and speaker, Amiel frames complex challenges like democracy, climate change, diversity, and race as practice fields for self-authorship. He has written five books, including Practice Greatness, Reimagining American Identity, and How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. His free online mini course, Nine Ways to Make the Ask, helps you use the Enneagram to make skillful requests. Amiel holds an MBA from the University of Michigan and a BA in Public Policy Studies from Duke University. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan with his wife and two sons. Good to see you. Good to see you, uh, Michael. It's great to be here. Yes, um, I really appreciate you being on the show today. And, you know, I kind of gave the title of what we're going to be talking about. But what I found really fascinating I'd like to start with is you seem to be a person, especially from a young age, who asks really deep and meaningful questions. And there are some questions that you've listed on your website that or seem to be really formative, like a question you asked when you're six years old about human relationships and a question you asked when you dropped out of medical school as a young adult. And like at various times, these questions were like, not just like, what should I do? But like almost like deep, meaningful questions about life and purpose and, what, and, and, and things along those lines. That blows my mind. And I'm really, really curious, like where do these questions come from? Like, who are you that led you to ask such serious questions, especially when you're what, six years old to begin the conversation? Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I think the questions come from a combination of often painful life experiences, uh, which we all have, uh, call that the challenge, and then people uh, that supported me. Mm. to reflect. Uh, I think that's just really, really a critical part of our whole conversation today is that mix of challenge and support. And uh, you mentioned a couple things from, from my website. So I'll just, I'll mention Please. when I was uh, six, my, my parents got divorced and there's a lot to say about that experience. Uh, the question that it prompted in me uh, beginning with working with a counselor or therapist when I was like eight or nine. So that's, that's back then. I think that was relatively rare today. A lot more people 
use that support. Uh, but the question was, why, why do good intentioned people have such a hard time getting along so often? You know, it's just like such a, such a shattering experience. And yet it led to a question. And then the other thing you mentioned of leaving medical school is, uh, is actually an example of a peak experience of the self-authored mind. In other words, I just had a peak, P-E-E-K, <laughs> uh, experience, which was for many years, just going along this professional path of taking science classes, pre-med, MCAT, going into medical school because my family, I later learned, wanted it. Mm -hmm. And then having a moment late at night, November of 1992, where I all of a sudden had this light of epiphany of, I could do something else. I don't have to be a doctor. And that led to a question about how come so many of us get uh, adhered to or stuck with someone else's agenda for us. Yeah. And then, and also the possibility of being able to grow beyond that and not be stuck there. And I'll just say, um, you mentioned that I ask questions. I wrestle with questions. It is a sweaty <laughs> struggle, Michael. Oh, I love that. Let, let me ask you a, a, a question about the medical school questioning about being in medical school and you actually were in medical school which is yes. amazing you know it, it's one thing to have a peak experience like oh aha like what am i doing here but to have the ego strength you want to put it that way to say oh i actually don't have to be here and i can change course that's a whole other conversation and i'm curious like were you always or when did you discover the capacity to not only ask these amazing questions and have these aha moments but to allow them to guide you with whatever the kind of in, internal guidance would be in, in a new direction. Yeah, that's that's a, mostly that's rare. Great. Well, so I had a rare experience in, in, in college, which is that my senior year uh, took a class called Managing Personal and Organizational Change. Okay. This is 1992, uh, 1991. And this was the first time anyone ever asked me in a school setting, I'm not talking about a counselor, to reflect on my experience. And we spent a whole semester, essentially the contents, they basically, the, 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 the two men that, that led it taught leadership development to executives. And they took a lot of that content and gave it to 21 year olds. So they had us do things like, you know, make, pull out a piece of paper, write a, a line down the middle. On the left side, write a list of all the things you find most meaningful in life. That takes a little while. Then on the right side, put a check marks next to uh, those items you've done in the last six months. Oh, wow. Nice. Great exercise. So amazing exercise. Wow. Eye-opening. Uh, today at 52, hmm. this is not a new or different or shocking exercise, but I'm talking however many years ago, that is 35 years ago. And we did a whole bunch of those. And so, um, and I actually, one thing I also want to credit, my teacher in that course, who ended up being my first boss, hmm. sent me a letter. Uh, I had done an internship with that company the summer between college and medical school for a couple months. And 
I wrote him, as I often do when I leave anything, uh, a description of where we're at, advice for the next guy or gal who's going to take this on, right? And he didn't respond to it right away in July. I got a letter from him sometime in September, October, while I was in Ann Arbor in medical school. And I remember sitting on a chair and reading the letter, and it said something like, uh, I trust you will um, do well in medicine or whatever other path you take. Wow. And I was, in retrospect, I'm like, man, he planted the seed. Yeah. Wow. Because he wasn't questioning it. He wasn't saying this is a wrong path, but he knew that I had other interests because I had fallen in love with the class and the whole notion of reflection and leadership. And I really credit that letter for going, what do you mean other path? But it was in a neutral way. And so by the time the fall came around, I was three months into school and I really inside, I had that sense of like, I don't want to be here. This doesn't feel right. Push it down, push it down, push it down. A lot of us have this experience. Like we know something, but we just push it back. And then, and then I had a 3 a.m. moment where I, I can do something different. And so it really was the support of a very wise mentor. And let me ask you a little bit about that before we get into the self-authoring mind. And this might be the kind of the way around to it. You talked about, you know, asking questions and then also having support. And, you know, I, unless, unless you have some psychic intuitive capacities, you're not going to know like this guy is the right guy to have a, a class with. But how do you choose over time the right people, whether intuitively or just like through rational process? These are the people or persons I need at this particular time to assist me whatever I'm working with to help me take me to the next level or work through my boo background of obviousness or what, you know, whatever the role they might play as a mentor, coach, guide, facilitator, or whatever they might be. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really challenging question. I, I think that there's deciding who to meet with and get to know. It's often the first part of it or realizing you're in relationship with someone you meet them at a, at a party, you're introduced by a friend, whatever, you meet through a professional setting. So the first thing is like, okay, where am I going to, how do I put myself in contact with the kinds of people that would be able to offer this to me? So it's like, who are you hanging out with? But then once you have that community, you're going to be interacting with a lot of people. Yeah. And it's being able to observe someone and notice, okay, there's something here for me. Now, when I picked that class, and this is actually a great example of, of, of not choosing things for the right reason. I, I, I picked that class because one of the faculty members of it, I never told them this, he was an assistant dean at the medical school where I was in college, Duke University. And I thought I might want to go to that medical school. Okay. So with my mind, I thought if I could get a letter of recommendation from him, I could get in to these schools. And so I'm going to take the class. What a reason to take a, a life shattering class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so wow. we don't always have it yeah. all planned out. And so yeah. it's a matter, and this is going to be a big part of what we're going to talk about is being really aware of all those moments and people in life and sensing what we're called to and what we can learn from it. Cool. Yeah. As we walk through the self-authoring mind, I'd love for you to give more examples of the people in your life that you've chosen as mentors, guides, facilitators, um, and how they've helped you and how you've done that 
perhaps with other people as well. Because uh, for me, the rela relationships are really important and I'm really curious in how people do them well. Um, but before we kind of jump into that side of things, if you could kind of define what you mean by the self-authoring mind and, and unpack that a little bit for us. Sure, absolutely. So I say self-authoring or sometimes self-authored depending upon whether the emphasis is it's in process or it's happened. So I've been using self-authoring. And this is a term from Robert Keegan, who is an expert of what's known as adult development um, out of Harvard. And it describes a way of making meaning of our experience that we don't have as a 10-year-old, don't have as an 18-year-old, but sometime in adulthood, if we're lucky, we develop this capacity to shift from what's known as what he calls the socialized mind, where who I am are perspectives, ideas, and values that come from outside of me, mm -hmm. like me wanting to be a doctor because my family wanted me to be a doctor, to having some inner system to deal with all these different other people's perspectives. And just, just, one, just to take a side note, because I think the background of this is really important, um, and some listeners, I know, I know you know this, and some listeners may know this. So for you know centuries of human history, we had no understanding of stages yeah. or of development. And then 100 years ago, we started to understand that child children go through these, Piaget, Margaret Mahler, and others. But we still kind of figured once you stop growing physically, your mind is done, your brain is done, you're an adult. And then, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, we had... Uh, Researchers like Robert Keegan and Jane Lovinger and others who followed them who said, well, hold on a second. We actually can measure and see that there are many, many ways to grow even after your, uh, your mind and your heart after body has stopped growing. So it's this beautiful uh, discovery that I know you and I have both been influenced by. And the move from the socialized mind to the self-authoring mind is according to Keegan, uh, and others, really the principal challenge for a majority of people in, let's just say, the Western industrialized world. Do we know the percentages of people who are in the socialized mind versus the self-authoring mind here, like in the States or Western Europe in the States? Are there, do we have figures on that yet? A different we than this we probably <laughs> does. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just curious because it, it seemed to me the, you know, the way you describe this, the socialized mind versus self-authoring mind majority of people that you know, I see in the world seem to be more from the socialized mind, no value judgment. It just seems to be the way that it is. So I'm just curious on the numbers. But right. It's, it's, there's way more social among adults. Socialized mind would be number one, self-authoring, self-authoring number two, and then there's self-sovereign, which comes, which is like the 10 year old mind, but as an adult and the self-sovereign mind is, I just want what I want give it to me. Mm. right? I understand my self-interest. I can't take into account other people's perspectives. And I love, I have a 10 year old son and I've really begun to appreciate this about him because it's for him, it's a growth just to be able to know what matters to him and how to get what he wants. That's an advance from what he, he couldn't do that at age six. He was just subject to whatever he wanted to, you know, his feeling in the moment. So he has that. But then at some point as teen, these are the teen years and beyond we go, Hey, there are these other people out there. And, you know, there's my peers and I want them to like me. And then uh, I, I join an organization and I, and I care about their mission. And I, I care about it. Maybe I have a relationship and I start to care about what my partner 
cares about. And I start to internalize all these things, which is so much bigger life than the self-sovereign. Yeah. And yet, uh, what happens when two people that I respect have a different opinion of something? What happens is I'm internally torn because mm -hmm. each one of those per people's perspectives is me. So what do you do when me and me disagree? You get all tangled up inside, right? And so the self-authoring mind says, oh, I have a system for, for dealing with situations where like my father and my mentor have a different idea about things, right? I have a way of internally of dealing with that. And this is the self-authoring mind. Um, and the great thing about it is that I'm no longer torn when these two people have a different opinion. I'm like, oh, I know how to deal with that. I have a way to work with that. What I am torn by are when my own internal values conflict. How, how, could you articulate how the, what the transition is like for someone going from the socialized mind to the uh, self-authoring mind? So I would imagine it's not like boom to boom. I mean, I have to imagine it's a little, for some, a little bumpy along the way. Yes. What are the transition? What is the transition like for some and some of the yeah. challenges? Like if you're, if you happen to be a self-authoring and you're around a lot of people who are in the socialized mind and you're watching them transition, what might you be looking for? Sure. And I'll say some things about this. And I also will offer the caveat that um, my expertise is in putting this into action rather than describing, but Keegan okay. and also Jennifer Garvey Berger, who's an expert in this space, describes substages. And okay. so one of the things that the first thing that happens when you are moving, um, growing, expanding beyond the socialized mind is you start to just kind of question, you start to question like your company, your, the, someone else's opinion, uh, a value set, what your parents wanted for you. You start to question it, but you don't have a, a new, a new replacement for it. You're just like kind of questioning it. And then as you, so you know, like when I was in medical school, that, that was not a stable self-authoring That was just a peak experience. Mm -hmm. I questioned it and I acted really freaking quickly because I, this is, this is actually kind of funny. I have to share this. I had so little faith that I would be able to stick with that mm. awareness. So little faith in that. Cause I knew how loyal I was to my family. Almost brings me to tears. Um, that I wrote a note to myself, Michael, that said, this is at two in the morning. I woke, turned on the light, got out a piece of paper, pen. Um, and I wrote a note that says, um, date, I uh, will be withdrawing from medical school. And I signed it. And then, and this is a little bit type A, but forgive me. I took a photograph of the paper because who knows where that paper is going to end up. I'm like, I'm documenting this because I don't trust that that's going to last. And that's kind of where you're at when you're in that transition is you're questioning, but you're going to, you're just, you, you really do identify with other people's perspectives and values. And you know, you do, and you're constantly torn, but you're beginning to question them. You're beginning to um, take a distance from them. Uh, Keegan talks about you're subject to something like it is you, and then you're able to make it an object of awareness. Oh, I can see it. So you're starting to see it. And then you, the way you know that you're getting close to the self-authoring mind is that you, when you see yourself or someone else in the socialized mind, you're like, I hate it. I hate it. No, no. Terrible. You're, you're using enormous energy to fight that back. Um, and maybe my example is the, 
the letter and the, the photography was sort of an example of like fighting it back. Yeah. Um, although I don't think I was near the self-authored mind at age 22 years old, no way. But you're using a lot of energy. And also what you find yourself doing then and even in the self-authoring mind is it becomes, you begin to be like, why can't other people self-author themselves? What's wrong with these people? And often in human development, we tend to, because we've differentiated ourselves from who we were before, we want to really be sure that we're not going back then again. So we become critical of it. Yeah. yeah. So that's also part of how you know you're moving into the self-authoring mind. You can kind of be a pain in the ass at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we step in, and I'd love for you to talk more about like, okay, self-authoring mind, we have a, a better picture of what it is. How are you applying it in the work that you do do? You mentioned states. You had a peak experience. Yes. Can you just briefly just make distinction between states, peak experience, and states and stages? Not everyone in the listening audience has read Wilbur or Keegan or Spock Yeah. I mean, so. the thing about a stage in this terminology, and I don't even always use that, but it's enduring. You're kind of there most of the time mm -hmm. during the day and throughout the year. A state could be uh, just a, a, you know, like an incredible feeling, like mm -hmm. after you've had a delicious meal or some kind of amazing workout. And I know you do physical feats that I can't even imagine. I, I, I know you. So, but you have that experience like, oh my gosh, but often that it ends. Mm. And so it's a glint. It often is a glimpse of something that maybe could be more stable in your life uh, later on. And that's one of the values of it. But mm. um, sometimes people just want to have a lot of these peak experiences and they don't take on the deliberate practices of that help us to actually stabilize into a stage or maybe just call it a new meaning making system yeah and, and i find that actually more and more especially with the popularity of psychedelics as an example that people are chasing the dragon chasing the, the state 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 but not doing the necessary work to stabilize it and turn it to a trade or a stage or a new meaning making system yeah uh, yeah for sure um, so talk to me about okay so you, you have some clarity on on the this this way of thinking about how people show up in the world and think about their thinking and operate in the world. How do, how do you apply this in the work that you do? Because you work with corporations, you work with individuals, you work with a wide variety of different human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me answer one maybe bridge question I think is important, which is why this matters. Okay. And I think it matters, um, and this is going back to Robert Keegan again, is so there's the whole story that we mentioned about like there, there are these ways we can grow and expand. It's just amazing possibility of human potential. Um, and then Keegan comes in and says, yes, true. And society wants us to kind of stretch more than maybe we're ready for. And so he calls that the mental demands of modern life. And if you look at what we're being asked to do in managing of being an empowered manager, empowering our people, or if you look at um, uh, emotional intelligence or books on parenting or uh, being able to have difficult conversations, Keegan says, you know, they all sound like different topics. They're all placing the same demand on us and it's for the self-authoring mind. Yeah. So the reason this matters to me and you and our listeners is that in all these realms of life, the, the environment presents this challenge to be self-authored. Um, and may or may not provide the support. And so all the, most of the, most, I won't say all, most of the advice givers are saying, okay, you're self-authored, here's what you can do. And Keegan's like, hey, we got to grow into that. Yeah. And so I've kind of, I took 20 years ago, I came across that and took on my mission to 
create practical ways, practices for people to go through these various forms of growth. Um, so that's the why. And then in terms of how, uh, I've landed a, a term that I call conversation micro habits. Okay. And so there's been you know, quite a bit of talk of habits in the last five or 10 years of how you form habits and change habits. Like Charles Duhigg had a very, very best-selling book about, I think it was called The Power of Habit, where he says, you can't just try and get rid of an old habit. You have to create a new one in its place. Um, so that's one body of work around how you create habits. It's related to deliberate practice, but a little different. And then there's another body of work that I've really been influenced by, which says that um, um, the way to, to get to do things, to grow, to change is through conversations. That's what we do as human beings, speaking and listening. And so, um, so that was the micro habit. Now this is the conversation side, is that um, to grow into self-authoring mind is we take on micro habits that happen in conversation. And in conversation can be roughly divided into two parts that I think everybody knows, speaking and listening. Mm -hmm. Sounds so obvious. Um, the thing that I learned around speaking that kind of blew my mind at the time is summarized in a book called You Are What You Say. You are what you say. And the idea is that words don't just describe reality. They also help bring it into being, mm. right? That's not all it is. There are objective facts in the world, as you and I know, but also words help bring it into being. And there's a, method, there's a whole body of work around that that helps us understand, like in our conversation now, what we're bringing forward between you and me and anyone listening by the words that we're choosing to use. And that's speaking. There's things we can say about conversational micro habits for speaking, some very specific ones that I use, my clients use. And then there's listening. And a year or two ago, I, this thought occurred to me around listening, because a lot of people say we say we want to be, be better listeners, although nobody teaches listening courses. <laughs> I remember Tom Peters said like 15 years ago, we should teach listening courses. I still don't know how many courses in the city. I haven't taught one. <laughs> Have you? Well, actually, I, I, actually. I, I used to run a coach and training program. So I would teach coaches how to listen in an embodied way, not just with their ears. There's other ways of listening too. So I could say partially, yes. <laughs> partially, okay, well, I'm, I'm with you on the partially list. I meant like it has to have listening in the title. So there aren't that many of them. Yeah, we fold it. We all fold it in. But I meant in the title. So, you know, listening, then there's a whole body of work around who's the person that's listening. And the phrase that came to me is that we're built for distraction. We're wired for distraction and we grow into listening. Wow. Okay. And we grow into it primarily by practicing listening. Right. A lot of times people say, well, why are you taking this class? Um, well, I want to be, so I can become a better listener when I'm, uh, with my wife, all right, I'll be, so I can become a better listener when I'm with my kids. It's almost like all the work of listening happens in the class and then you're there and then you go interact with that person. 
And what occurred to me is each of those interactions that we have in our everyday life, that's the practice moment mm -hmm. if we frame it as such. And so, um, you know, there's speaking and speech acts and attending to the words, the intentions, the voice, the body, all that. And then there's listening, observing our own listening in the midst of everyday life, particularly the filters, the ways that we tend to like look for certain things. There's patterns of those. We can get into that if we want to. Like the Enneagram is a great way to understand filters of listening. And so in, in any case, um, there are micro habits for both of those that um, when we practice them, we can um, practice self-authorship and even beyond. I'd love for you to uh, give some examples of some of the practices for both speaking and listening. But let me ask you a question. You know, the way we're discussing right now, it's interpersonal in between me or you and another per human being or multiple human beings. Do you see this also applying for internal conversations? How I speak to myself, how I listen to myself? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the process, I mean, when I say like observing my own listening, that is happening within. And when I'm reflecting at the end of the day, or at the beginning of the year, like we're at the beginning of the year here, like a lot of that is happening internally, or maybe I'm typing, or maybe I'm writing. Um, so absolutely, it's not just live or an email with another person, it can happen with ourselves. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, so speaking and listening. And I love the, the idea of, of uh, we're born into distraction, and we have to learn to pay attention to listen. That's really interesting. Uh, before we before you give some micro examples, like I, I could imagine with that frame that our information age it makes it even more challenging, perhaps, to learn to listen deeply. W would you say that's accurate or how might you think about all the technology we have and the social media stuff and texting and tweeting and all that stuff? Yeah, well, you know, so we're built for distraction. We grow into listening and then our environment pushes us back to distraction. Okay, yeah. <laughs> with the short attention spans yeah. and the heated interactions. And, um, you know, one of the, one advice that just seems to work in so many settings with many people, not everybody is, okay, if you've had a certain number of emails or texts with someone and you're not moving ahead, get on the phone. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't accomplish everything, but it, it certainly allows for uh, a different form of relating. So yeah, I think the last like 10 years, in many ways, things have become um, more challenging. Now, the flip side of that is that the bar is so low oh. that if you're practicing these things, people will assess you as a good listener or as a good partner, or good in relationship. And the, you know, the, the example, uh, is, is, is listening in organizations. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, when we talked about becoming a better listener, that meant uh, when somebody is speaking, you're looking at them, maybe you're nodding your head, maybe you're paraphrasing back what they say, uh, you're not just like violently disagreeing with it. Um, today, what I often hear in tips of good listening is, Put your device away. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, isn't that a low, that's a really low bar. <laughs> low threshold, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, it's kind of sad, that's for sure, yeah. 
So walk me through some of the, like you're working with clients or clients and you want to help them embody self-authoring mind in, in their daily conversations, um, the speaking and the listening. Can you walk through each one and give some examples of how you work with your clients and help them through those processes? Sure. Um, which one would you like me to start? Speaking. Speaking. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's just talk about emotions for a second. Um, there's a distinction between the socialized mind and the self-authored mind of how we deal with emotions. In the socialized mind, uh, if I'm upset, I assume it's coming from you. Michael, you made me feel angry. That's a common expression. And then when I'm upset, I'm sorry, um, when you're having emotions, I take responsibility for it. And I could feel guilty or angry or whatever, but I feel like, oh, I've got to do something about this. He's having these emotions. I'm responsible for them. In the, the self-authoring mind, I have this realization, you generate your own emotions. That's, that's your body of work. <laughs> and yeah. I generate my own. This yeah. is probably the hardest part of the self-authored mind. I mean, I'm really all, I mean, all over the map emotionally. I just, you know, I, I can be in the socialized mind one minute, self-authored in the next. But um, so in the world, the nonviolent communication body of work is one of many that has some nice language for this. Instead of saying, you made me feel, it's when this happens, I felt. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be like, angry or disappointed, often surprised can get us a long way. Yeah. Like let's not use a you know a straw man like, well, if I'm doing nonviolent communication, that means I have to tell everyone that I'm angry or sad. Yeah. You can just say I was confused. I was surprised. And I'm owning my own emotions when I do that. And the other person recognizes that. Um, now if they're in, in the socialized mind, it doesn't matter what I do they might still take responsibility for what I'm saying and feel like they got to fix it. But I do my part, you know, I do my part. And um, so, so one micro habit is just being able to uh, name that the feelings are mine and okay. maybe something happened and now I've got, um, and then the other half of it is to be able, and this is, I just love it when I see people do this is I really get, I get that you really have strong emotions around this. If the person hasn't named an emotion, it's probably not wise to say, I, I hear you're angry. Yeah. Right. Then they're like, who the hell are you to tell me I'm angry? <laughs> yeah. So we can say, I, I, there's a lot of energy here. There's a lot of strong emotions. These are micro habits. Or like, hey, it seems like you really care about this. You're really passionate about it. What we're doing is we're saying, there's something, what's happening inside of me when I say, there's something over there with you. It ain't me. Something over there with you that's happening. And I'm acknowledging it and I'm honoring it. Yep. It's good for the relationship, but it also helps me to practice separating that person's emotions from me. They generate it, not me. That's, that's one example. Yeah, no, I think it's a great example. Let me ask you about the so-called negative emotions, anger, sadness and stuff. You know, in, in my work, I find it very fascinating that, you know, they come in first as a therapist, now as a coach, like they come in and they want to work on their emotions, but they don't want to, they don't necessarily want to work on at the beginning happiness, joy, and bliss. I'm like, well, that's really interesting. Like you want to just work on what we call the negative emotions. And I'm curious, like in your work, do you find people in this new way of communicating once it becomes self-authorizing, authorizing, author, yeah, authorizing, authority, authority, authority. God, just 
authorizing would be another version of that works too. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, oh, yeah. Brain loop there. Um, that they start beginning to recognize the full fullness of all the emotions that are available to them, as opposed to just one of some of the few that maybe are socially accepted or not socially accepted, but it's okay to talk about them because I'm in this new relationship with you as a you know, particular coach. You know, it could be, but it doesn't have to happen because what you you'll you what you'll have is a system. You have a, a, a theory of how to deal with emotions because that's what you get at the self-authoring mind is you start to have a, a theory or system for things. So my, I might have a theory, like maybe growing up, uh, I was you know, taught to um, always be positive. Look on the light side. Don't ever show your negative emotions. Maybe as an adult, I have a new self-authored view, which is um, to basically share my authentic feelings with everyone at all times, okay. um, but not to share my positive if it's positive. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a, you'll have access to more, but not, not necessarily everything. What okay. you'll have is a theory about emotions that you may or may not be aware of. Wow. That's really interesting. Okay. So literally, literally just creating a new meaning, making map a model for yourself. A little bit more expansive, perhaps than the original one you came into the into this conversation with. Okay, cool. You're not you're not subject to those emotions. It doesn't mean you can you love all of them. You're just aware of them. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So that's some examples of uh, in the speaking space. Do you want to give one more example in the speaking? Uh, yeah. Space? I mean, I literally just to give an, in case anyone's thinking that I'm a nonviolent communication guy, and that's what I run with all the time. I've got dozens and dozens of these um, micro habits and I've never really talked about them at one time in an interview. So this is very, very cool. Oh, good. It's always, good. what is this client? What's going to help this client at this time? Mm -hmm. Right. Very customized for the person. But um, I would say uh, there's uh, one called grounding assessments. So if I have a take or a perspective on a situation, I don't just say it. I actually say, and here's how I got there. Here's how I think about oh. that. Here's what led me to that. The act of grounding the assessment is the act of telling you how I've self-authored the perspective. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is sometimes we have a whole way of coming up with our perspectives on things, but we don't tell people how we got there. And so we miss a practice opportunity. Like I might, you know, like... Um, it's, we're having some conversations in the house right now about the, the living room. We've been in the house for a year and a half. We worked on some other rooms, the living room. Uh, we haven't gotten a couch yet. So it's like we're having all these conversations. And I could just say, um, yeah, I think the TV needs to go over there. Or I could say, um, well, um, it sounds like you think the TV should go here for these reasons. Let me tell you a little about how I'm thinking about this. Kind of my view of TVs is that da 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 da. And I kind of give my my theory of TVs and living rooms, which is brand new, actually, Michael, of, of a week ago. I never, I never had this. Theory. <laughs> so I'll be another interview. So I'm starting to like <laughs> ground my assessment. Um, yeah, yeah, here's yeah. another another great one that I a friend and I did a whole course around. Um, and you mentioned in the intro a, a, a free mini course around it, which yeah. is about making requests. And um, just the act of asking for things isn't self-authoring, right? We can ask, you know, my boss, 
my boss tells me to ask someone else something and I ask them it. I do it because my boss wants me to, right? Um, in making requests, if we can reflect on what is it that I want in this situation? What is it that I want in this situation? And why do I want it? And can I frame it? And can I illustrate, tell a story about what will happen for me and the other person? Um, I'm now self-authoring my request. And so there's the preparation to that. But um, what my friend Mike and I did was he had people actually put together four parts of speech. This is out of Bill Torbert from Emeritus mm -hmm. at Boston College from his work. Um, he has four parts of speech. I sort of wedded it with the notion of making requests that you can frame requests in terms of what you see and your assumptions so people know where you're coming from. Then you advocate, here's what I propose or what I want. Then you illustrate, here's what the world will look like if the TV is on this side of the room, not that side of the room. And then the inquiry is, would this work for you? How does that sound to you? So I've just, you know, that there's a lot to what I've just said. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but the, the idea is that I'm actually reflecting on when I ask for things, which I'm doing all day. We're, all of us are making requests all the time, um, asking for things, is I'm actually reflecting on what do I want from this situation? Um, what, what does success look like by when? Who might I ask? When you go through those lists of questions, that's really hard to do from a socialized mind. Yeah. Really hard to do. You could, but you're, you're kind of pushing yourself into that realm of, of, of self-authorship. So that's, um, that. let me just mention one other uh, example, which I call my take, your take, or my side of the story, your side of the story. I've had many, many leaders find this valuable when they are uh, seeing the world differently from a colleague, could be on their team, could be a, in a different, often like in a different division in a company. And the temptation would be to argue about who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, that's like arguing about whether it's warm in the room or not. It's silly. We could argue, that's a, it's, a, it's an assessment versus an assertion is, this is a speech act, assertion is it's 72 degrees in the room or 68. You can objectively verify that by looking at a decent uh, thermostat, thermometer, thermostat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thermostat. So you can be right or wrong, right? But if somebody says, I'm warm, and, and you go, it's warm, and I go, no, it isn't warm. <laughs> I mean, you have involvement in these conversations. It's like, oh, yeah. well, that's an assessment. Can you ground it? I'm warm, I'm sweating. Okay, that's a grounded assessment. So um, in organizations, we argue about who's right or wrong as though it's facts. There's a fact to prove. Really, it's an assessment to ground. I mentioned grounding assessments, but here, it's not just me doing mine. It's saying, hey, uh, we've been in this conversation together about um, uh, the best way to bring these two teams together. And I'd like to have you take some time to give kind of your view and your side of the story and sort of help me understand what's behind it. And I may have some questions for you. And then I'd like to take some time to tell you how I'm looking at things right now uh, and kind of like what's behind it. And you're basically announcing to the other person at the very beginning that I don't think I'm right and you're wrong yeah. or vice versa. And what I'm doing is I'm creating a differentiation between the other person's uh, way of seeing things and my own. This is, I've been told this is beyond self-authoring, which is why it's hard to do, but it's, it's up in the realm. And I can imagine you mentioned emotional intelligence a few minutes ago, like it really requires a pretty high level of emotional intelligence 
because you, you, you're going to want to not be reactive to the other person. Oh, it is warm. No, it's not warm. Whatever the conversation is, you know, you want to be able to hold the different perspectives, engage in this deep conversation, ask questions, be curious and not be reactive to whatever they say, which is different from what you're coming from. Absolutely. Emotional intelligence. And I would agree with what you're saying. And I would add something. Please. It requires emotional intelligence and our theme of the day. It's also a practice that can build emotional intelligence. Uh, okay. Both That's and, cool. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we get into the listening side, you gave some great examples of practices on the on the speaking side. Who are your clients? Like who comes to you and says, Amiel, I really want to learn these amazing skills so I can do X, Y, and Z. Sure. Uh, well, I've been coaching for about 23, I guess 24 years. And so it's really ranged over the years. Um, starting in the late 2000s, I started working with really big Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. Okay. And it would typically be uh, senior managers who are managers of managers or managers of managers of managers. <laughs> Sometimes you would say director level, but I think the important thing is to know like they're not generally individual contributors. It okay. could be a first line manager, but often they're beyond that. And because the company's putting in money, they're often people that they've said, you're high potential, we want to invest in you. Um, so in the last five or seven years, I've worked with more privately owned companies of more like one to 300 people. And I actually really, I've been oh, really yeah. getting a kick at like presidents and CEOs and oh, some, cool. college, some college presidents as well. And that's a different, that's really different. I really actually find that quite refreshing. I, I can see that. <laughs> that's very cool. Did I, did I smile differently? Yeah. 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 <laughs> did I loosen up, Michael? <laughs> you got your somatic awareness. You can see it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't help it, man. <laughs> I will th thank you for sharing. Because I just want the listening audience to know, like, and I would imagine, you know, this would be helpful for any human being on the planet that you don't have to be a C-suite director of sorts to benefit from your work. So I want to put that out there, put that out there, but tell me, tell me a little bit about a couple of the exercises on the listening side. Sure. And so uh, I'm going to break this out into two, to two areas. So some yeah. of it is while you're literally hearing, you're not speaking, your mouth is shut. And then ironically, some of the practices for listening actually involve speaking, mm. right? That's kind of ironic. Um, so, you know, let's start with the second area, the listening practice that are actually speaking. Um, so if I go into a conversation with someone and let's say um, it's with my father, we moved across the country, we're back. I was in Oregon, I'm in Ann Arbor. One of the wonderful things about it is that my dad and stepmom are in town and, you know, we, do, we have them over for dinner once a month. They have the kids stay at their house once a month. We have conversations in between. Um, and I should just say the relationship has been way easier the closer we've moved. That's a whole other, that's a whole other interview. But um, just, I just wanted to set that context, but you know, I, I could be talking with my dad about um, maybe doing a vacation together. And I kind of have a sense that he's gonna kind of have a whole bunch of things he's gonna say. If I go into that, conversation, prepared to paraphrase and ask clarifying questions. 
I, I got to do my work. How, how can I possibly paraphrase and ask a clarifying question, which I know is good for the relationship, unless I listen? Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting forcing function. So the act of saying, hey, dad, it, it sounds like um, you would rather be on a lake seeing water than at this resort that has no lake because of da 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 da. If I go into the conversation with the intent of, I've got to reflect back what I'm hearing from him for two reasons. Number one, to make sure I understand it. And number two, sometimes when I paraphrase for him, he goes, well, that's not what I meant. Good. Yep. And we all do this, right? It's, oh, yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's no knock against anyone, but we're just mm-hmm. thinking things out loud. So um, if I go into it, then I'm like, all right, I know I'm going to be paraphrasing him. So I think I'm going to listen now instead of doing something else. <laughs> so that's one thing. I mean, it sounds so, so obvious, mm-hmm. but it, it does it. It pushes the function. Um, it put, it, it, it kind of gets you into, into doing that. And so there are things like paraphrasing, asking clarifying questions, help me understand is one of my favorite conversation micro habits, just help me understand what you meant by, or help me understand. Um, but then there's actually, while you're quiet, they're the micro habits for listening. And I think one of the most important ones is to notice your distractions, hmm. to name them. Like, oh, hmm. I'm going into worst case scenario here. Oh, okay. I'm Because ca- I'm catastrophizing. And this is true for me. I'm, yeah, I'm not making this up. Like okay. I can, just the way I'm wired, for those people who know the Enneagram system of personality development and growth, I'm at Enneagram six, which um, is uh, one of the habits of the six can be like, all right, what's the worst thing that can happen? Let me prepare for it. Okay. So I often will notice myself, maybe even talking to my dad and he's saying, well, let's go on a lake. Let's go to a lake. And I'm thinking, uh, what do we know how to do on a lake? What are we going to do on a lake? We're going to water ski. Who knows how to water ski? That's not going to go so well or you know, the kids don't know how to swim that well. What if they, right? And so he's talking about the lake and how much he loves the lake. And I'm having this whole other conversation. You talked about internal conversations with myself. I am listening. All these things he's bringing me, this love, you want to call it that? It's all getting filtered. Is it safe or is it not safe? Is something going to go wrong or is it not going to go wrong? So I'm, what I'm doing this, the 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 habit I'm doing is I'm going there I go again. Yep. yep. Now that's me. Somebody else might be listening. Is this right or wrong? Yep. Or does this person like me right now? Do they are they do they have a good feeling towards me or not? Or uh, someone else might be like, is there peace and harmony here or is there conflict? Right. I got to make so you're all listening through a different filter. I was going to say one of the so one of the things I'm hearing you say is we all have programs which filter how we perceive the conversation or the other person in front of us, and I would imagine awareness of our own programming. Not that you know, not necessarily you're going to get rid of all our programs, and I think it's good to work on your own programs. Blah 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 blah. blah. But at least being aware of like oh I'm a six in the Enneagram system, automatic negative thoughts ants. Like this is the way I do my thinking. Like it's good to know that. So you can learn to manage yourself, I would imagine. And that way you can engage in a deeper, better conversation and not be reactive to your own programming from wherever it came from. Absolutely. And listeners will note that you just paraphrased. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, credit where credit is due. 
<laughs> and it's kind of nice, isn't it? To like to paraphrase and you're like, okay, make sure I understand where you're coming from. And it actually feels good. It feels good to me. I imagine it feels good to you when we do that. Um, so, you know, so this is just like the starting place and we won't get through all of it, but you know, the, so there's setting the intention to listen in a way so that I can speak in a certain way. There's you know, putting the device away. We mentioned that earlier. There's noticing our listening filters. Um, and there are a lot of teachers who have three or four categories and usually fewer categories are helpful for people learning something new. So they say, are you listening to be right or wrong? Uh, are you listening to show what you know, or are you listening to learn? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, three or four, those are absolutely valid. And as a fan of the Enneagram, I find these nine patterns incredibly powerful because those three don't cover everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. and um and sometimes people don't see themselves in those so yeah you start to notice that and then but then once you can actually uh go okay i'm getting distracted then there's a layer of listening of um a variety of things what is important to this person right now mm. right? what's important to them what what are they what emotions might they be feeling and here we can draw on like uh, Paul Ekman um, work on how facial expressions, facial muscles, he's almost done it so scientifically, can tell us the emotions. There's a skill you can build. I'm just like recognizing. And, and, and this isn't just about building better relationships. This can protect you because sometimes somebody can get mad at you and it's like, you got to know what that looks like, yeah. right? Um, so then there's, there's like noticing, listening for emotions, listening for what's important to somebody. Um, and it really depends on what kind of conversation that you're in. So uh, just let me make a side point here. So there's um, one way I like to talk about it, and I'm not the first person. So there's like three types of conversations. There's conversations for stories and assessments. There's conversations for possibility, and there's conversations for action. And conversations for stories and assessments, I've been doing a lot of this lately. After my football team, Michigan, got beat by TCU. What happened? Why did it happen? Why didn't they let the quarterback run the ball sooner? Mm. Why did they run up the middle, not the outside? What were they doing have those, having those safeties give away their blitzes? Like I'm getting into some level of detail here. <laughs> but it's like there's no action happening. There's no what's possible for the team or not that I have a lot of power over the football team or me as a person. It's just like looking back at what happened. Why did it happen? So in those conversations, we're listening for people's assessments and what's behind them. Mm -hmm. And we're listening for facts that they share that we may not be aware of. Okay. Right. Yep. So yep. the listening changes to based on the type of conversation that we're in. So if somebody's making assessments, telling stories about the past, we're trying to understand, are there new facts here for me that I'm not aware of? What, what takes does this person have on it? What's behind their takes? Maybe even, what are they clear about or not clear about? These are things that we can listen for, okay? They become really important when we actually get into conversations for action. Um, conversation for possibility is, um, all right, uh, let's, I'll get back to my dad again. Dad, if you're listening, I hope we've had this conversation already. So we're gonna be having a conversation for possibility with him. What if our younger son were to be with him and my stepmom for a whole weekend because my wife, Julie and I are both going to be out of town. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be with our older son and his on a class trip. My wife's going to be on a retreat. 
So where's our younger son going to go? So we could just say, hey, dad, would you be, you know, give him the whole thing, make a, a skillful request of him. Um, but, but, but what we're going to do instead is say, hey, we just want, you have a possibility. We just want to mention to you and kind of talk about it a little bit together. We're not asking you anything. We just want to talk about what this feels like, how it might work. What if, call it a what if conversation, we were to do that. And so in a what if conversation, what you're listening for is what's possible. Yeah. So yeah. also it's very good for those so-called positive emotions that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And then a conversation for action is when we start to ask things and offer things of each other. So two ways that all action happens. Either I ask you to do something to bring about a result, or I offer to bring about a result myself, whole body of work around this. Um, but the key thing is that when we're, when we're in those, what we're listening for is very different. So um, if I decide to make a request to my dad, after we've had the possibility conversation, we're like, okay, sounds like he's kind of open to it. He hasn't closed the door. We've talked through some of the logistics. Now, dad, we really want to ask you to do this. Um, if he's listening to me well, he doesn't have his device. He's working through his listening filters. He's prepared to paraphrase. He's saying to himself, hmm, what are they asking for? I know we had talked about the possibility. What are they actually asking? Oh, Friday at noon. Sorry, Friday at four to Sunday at nine. Got it. Or you said the weekend, what does that mean? So you're listening for the what. You're also listening for the when. Now, most when we talk about becoming a good listener, this isn't what people usually mean. But think about all the mischief and suffering that happens when we don't understand what the hell we're asking for. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so he would be then be listening for the what, the when, the why, and then asking clarifying questions about it. And, and that's you know, like one of the wonderful micro habits in this realm that just saves so much turmoil in life is number one, realizing that someone is asking you for something. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're making a request. And sometimes you have to say, are you just floating an idea or are you making a request? That's a self-authoring kind of thing to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're making a request. Could you clarify what it is? Could you clarify when? Right? So these are all um, micro habits of listening that then involve some, and I know I've said a lot, but some form of speaking. Let me stop there. You know, the three words, and you just use one clarity, but three words that keep coming to my mind, listen to you lay out these the listening skills are curiosity. I mean, you really have to be really curious about the other person and even curious about yourself and your own reactions and responses to what you're hearing. Uh, clarity, I love that because like you just said, like there are some, and I do couples coaching, there's so many conversations that could go so much better <laughs> if their people were more clear on their intent and, they, and their desires and their wants and needs and stuff like that. And the other word that comes to my mind is playfulness. Like your whole approach seems to be very playful. You can't be scripted. Like you just kind of have to, you know, engage in a very playful, open hearted, open-minded way, which I love. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I don't think people around me would say I'm always playful. I, I, I get grumpy, <laughs> but yeah, it is fun to, um, to look at these kind of difficult things as something to play with, because when you practice curiosity by asking those questions, it takes a little bit of the, can take a little bit of the pressure out of it. Now you can ask the question in an interrogating fashion. Yeah. 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 Right. So it's not just about asking, you know, like, 
when are you going to get it to me by? Hey, they asked the question. Well, no, it's not just the word. <laughs> and, and I'll just say about the curiosity and the clarity is that people have different motivations for doing mm -hmm. these things. But I think the point is that we learn to um, build our own system for making sense of the world. We can, one, of, you know, one of the ways we can learn it is by, in this case, just being like, I want to understand what you're asking for, because then I want to be able to have my own response <laughs> rather than what? Habitually, yes. Habitually, yeah. no. Turning away, using the Gottman framework. They say turning toward, turning away, turning against, where you're kind of like, someone makes a request and I'm like, change the topic or literally turn my back to you. These are all habits. Now, I guess you could have a self-authoring version of that. Like whenever this person, I hate this person. Whenever he makes a request to me, I'm going to turn my back to him because that's what works in life. That could be self-authoring, mm -hmm. um, right? But, but what I'm saying is that uh, if you have a way of like, how can I assess whether or not I'm going to accept this request or decline or counter offer on other body work? That is, I've got a, it's coming from somewhere and it's probably not coming from what my parents wanted from me or maybe what this person wants from me. I'm making my own assessment of it. And yes, curiosity and clarity. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Um, you, you mentioned a course you do with my namesake, Mike. <laughs> can you uh, briefly talk about that course, how people can learn more about it? And I also mentioned you have some books out there. If you could just briefly talk about your books and how people can find you online. Absolutely. Too. Yeah, so let me um, mention, um, we did a, a live course, which we're not offering anymore, but we have a free online self-paced course, mini course called Nine Ways to Make the Ask. Hmm. And so we use the Enneagram, nine different personality patterns, types, as we call it. Uh, yeah, a five? five. Oh, okay, <laughs> I got I got the wing, man. The five wing. <laughs> so each one you'll learn. Oh, what are my default habits when mm. I'm making requests? And then what would be a growth edge for me? Mm -hmm. It's a quick course, so we can include a link for that in the uh, oops in the show notes. Um, and I'm glad we're drawing to a close because that alarm if people heard it is to get ready to go pick up my, my son um, sure. and his friend. Uh, books. So um, one that you can find on Amazon is called Practice Greatness, mm -hmm. Escape Small Thinking, Listen Like a Master and Lead with Your Best. Nice. I wrote nice. that maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I, I just had... Uh, some colleagues in Ukraine who just sent me a note on New Year's Day saying they bought it for a New Year's gift. Aww. We've been having some conversations about, about all that. Um, and I, I wrote a book with Greg Thomas and Jewel Kinch Thomas called Reimagining American Identity, which um, is a free ebook that uh, I really enjoyed doing. And then recently I wrote one that's on my website called How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. And um, those are uh, a few of the books that I have, two free. One, one requires a little, little outlay of cash. Cool. And, and your website and any oh, other yes, media thank presence? You. Thank you. So it's amielhandelsman.com. 
A-M-I-E-L-H-A-N-D-E-L-S-M-A-N. I used to say E-L and people always flip the L and the E. So I've stopped now at the E, pause, L-S. It's crazy <laughs> that we have to do to, to make sure that people don't put the right name down. Um, so amiohandelsman.com also um, lots of great, there's lots of, lots of great, I wrote it, um, pat yourself on the back. Lots of stuff I've written around this topic under um, writings and podcasts um, and a bunch of interviews I've done on my, my now defunct podcast. Um, and then I also have a page on Medium. I don't remember the URL, but if you look up Amiel Handelsman in Medium, it has a lot of stuff I've written lately about race and culture and diversity and inclusion. Cool. I'll make sure to include all, all of that in the show notes. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to be late for your son and his friend. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank yeah. you. I, it's yeah. been a total honor, man. I, lo I love the way you ask questions and listen and uh, really, really enjoyable to have a chance to talk together, Michael. Yeah. I mean, this has been great. It finally happened. Thank you for your patience. I'll say that publicly. And uh, it's great to see you. And uh, I look forward to future conversations. Great to see you. There's nothing in between you and me Nothing in between blue and sea Nothing in between us and love Nothing in between wings